0: Welcome to Culture Matters, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and culture. I'm Adam Hawkins, your host, and today I'm here with Jamin Roller, and we're going to be interviewing a very special guest. New Testament scholar Jonathan Pennington is here. We're going to talk to him about, really, we want to talk to him about so many things, but we'll try to narrow the focus and talk about his book, Jesus, the Great Philosopher. Dr. Pennington, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Hey, thanks. It's a joy to be here. Yeah. So uh, I'm a professor of New Testament, as you said. I'm also a pastor at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. And those two things really mark my life with a lot of joy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Been married almost 30 years, and my wife and I have six kids, and they all live in town, and we spend a lot of time together enjoying uh, the the goodness of the Lord and the goodness of life.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I mean, honestly, it's um, rare that you get to meet your heroes and to have you on today is really sweet. Um, Jesus, the Great Philosopher is a book that's Mm -hmm. meant a lot to me recently as I've read it. And then going back, other books you've written, uh, Reading the Gospels Wisely was another one that was influential. I know for Jamin, as we preached on Sermon on the Mount, that was
2: something that really... Yeah. I don't think you know this, Dr. Pennington, but... Um, we were uh, wrapping up a series here, a sermon series, and I was wondering what to do next and I came across your uh, commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, and that's kind of what made me want to preach through the Sermon on the Mount. So we did a year in the Sermon on the wow. Mount, and then as we're kind of tying up Sermon on the Mount, we had a couple of smaller series. and. I'm thinking, what do we need to do next, and then we got to spend some time together at that dinner, and you talked about Jesus, the philosopher, and I thought, man, a wisdom series would be mm. really wow. helpful, mm. and so we're in a wisdom series right now, and so what you don't know about your time here is, I need you to do or say something that will let me know what the next sermon series <laughs> right. is Fair going to be Okay, I can do that. Well, that's
1: that uh, that's beautiful and, and uh, encouraging, glad to hear it.
0: Yeah. We're just following your lead, man. <laughs> right, okay. So don't blow it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, um, yeah, like I said, we want to try to narrow the focus so that it's it's not too schizophrenic. But um, yeah, hopefully, talk a lot about Jesus the great philosopher because that's something that I'm interested in. And I think as we talk about philosophy, as this is a podcast about the intersection of faith and culture, I think this book in particular, as we think about a world that offers so many ideas, um, what was so captivating to me is uh, the vision you put forward for Jesus as a philosopher. I I can't put my finger on it, but it recovered something about Mm. Christianity for me. Mm. And so, um, yeah, I'm just excited to get into it. But maybe first, before we dive into all that, just the question, what led you to write this book?
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks. That's all very encouraging. Um, Yeah, it's been a journey. I often describe it as kind of a a leapfrog uh, effect in my life that I get interested in something and I pursue it and then it's often resulted in some kind of book and in this case uh, the the summer of the mountain human flourishing was a came out of teaching through Matthew and then teaching the Sermon on the Mount and then quickly realizing I had no idea what the sermon was about (laughs) and needed to spend quite a few years studying it and then eventually wrote that book. But even as that book was finishing up, it was becoming clear to me like, okay, now I need, now I'm understanding this more, uh, this idea of wisdom and human flourishing Mm -hmm. and that the whole Bible is really about this. And so I wanted to write something that kind of put it together in a more accessible way than a commentary sometimes would, and also to look at the whole Bible uh, as kind of wisdom and and with Jesus as the apex of that. So it really has just been – I feel like when I look back over the last 30 years of my life, I didn't plan – anything it's like i saw the next thing and tried to do it well mm-hmm. that's about it and so for the, this is the same way i just kind of do whatever i'm passionate about next and try to do it well so
2: so one of the things that was really helpful for me actually in reading both books is kind of a reminder or this idea that what philosophers do is they help lead people into the good life right or the language uh, of the flourishing life and uh, I don't remember where, but at some point you make the, um, just a really helpful distinction or, or, or maybe just a recovery of even the idea of happiness mm-hmm. and that there is something of happiness that Jesus offers, invites to, like any philosopher does, that they're, they're trying to articulate and help you go into, lead you to that life that is happy. And, you know, in my experience with that word as somebody who's been a Christian for a long time... Um, and I don't think any it's from any ill intent, but that it would be easy to listen to a lot of Christian teaching and think, God doesn't care whether you're happy or not, He just wants you to be obedient. Um, I think that that how I heard it even like in teenager, early adult years is, you know, God doesn't want you to be happy, He wants you to be holy. I think there was even a marriage book that said your marriage is not for your happiness, it's for your holiness. And obviously, all those things were probably really well intended to make an important point, but. In that, maybe it maybe it's just in my own mind, maybe there was an overcorrection. And so, I'd love to hear you talk about that, kind of the recovery of of the idea that, that there is something really important about happiness that Jesus teaches that uh, is important for Christians to hold on to.
1: Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. That was exactly my experience, too. And I bet a lot of us who have spent any time in the church, that kind of, that's a really strong articulation of it that's probably very common happy versus holy, right? Mm-hmm. And it's exactly that that really drove, uh, was a change in my own understanding of the Bible and who God is uh, for us in Christ that really drove the last 15 years of, of all this work towards human flourishing and Jesus as a It's exactly that. And I think for me, um, you know, there are a lot of kind of data points that got connected together. I'm sure I can't remember all of them, various things I read. Um, but I think I just began to see in the Bible... Um, that you know, all of God's commands are for our good. Mm-hmm. That God's heart toward us is that we might reenter into a, a state of Eden, but beyond even. even there's something even more beautiful than than innocence, which is redemption, right? right? And that this 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 is what the whole Bible's about. I mean, it's where it ends, and and I think one of the places you can put your finger right on it is that even Jesus, you remember what it says in Hebrews that he endured the cross despising its shame why for the joy set before him yeah. mm-hmm. you know i mean he, even even jesus is doing things for his own own joy so i can't remember all the times and places where this that idea began to get chipped away but it definitely did i think a lot of it did have to do with studying the sermon on the mount and and coming to recognize um, that the beatitudes themselves are invitations to learn what true happiness is. That's what a macroism is. What's mm-hmm. what beatus means in Latin, it means happy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the things that have misled us, usually well-intentioned again, are the uh, the shallow sense of happiness mm-hmm. that we have in our culture now, that happiness just means some kind of simple, temporary positive emotion, mm-hmm. where the deeper idea of happiness, even in English and in these other words, is more like satisfaction or shalom. Mm-hmm. And so I think, Understanding that that is not the opposite of suffering, that in fact, paradoxically, um, the most uh, satisfying and shalom or life-giving things are actually the most difficult things, mm-hmm. right? I think that's one thing that has this shallow sense of happiness has, has hurt our sense of of that but i think also you know the bible does talk about sacrifice and taking up your cross and all that and i think we haven't known how to put that together with happiness and i and again i think it comes back to that same issue that that really happiness is not the opposite of suffering or shalom is not the offer, opposite of suffering that they are entailed together i don't know if i'm explaining myself very yes. clearly but here, here's what i think i think of the movie inside out i mm. think this is such a great example of this where if you think about the narrative arc of inside out which is really interesting, you know, talking about emotions. The <clears throat> her parents, Riley, I think is her name, her parents want her to be happy and she wants to be happy. And they think that happiness means everything goes well and mm-hmm. the core memories are all yellow, right? And mm-hmm. everything's good. If you think about what the movie's really saying, is at the end she has to learn, and her parents have to learn that true happiness is not the opposite of suffering and sadness and the core memories then when she finally gets back to a place of health, the core memories are both yellow and blue, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. In other words, that her own journey and her parents' own journey to allow this to be the case is to recognize that the true, the fullness of life comes in embracing all of human experiences and all of emotions, including sadness and loss and fear, that all those are part of what it means to be human and that that's, that's where the flourishing life is found. So that's what God is about. So, man, I feel like that was a really circum no, sorry, circumlocutionary answer, but no, uh, I helpful. care about those things too. It's, and so. I think
2: we also... I'm sorry, Adam. You don't do this a lot, so it's fine. <laughs> the, I think the idea, and for me, it almost... In the, in the human flourishing, in the commentary on, on the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus, the idea that Jesus is comfortable appealing to happiness as a motivating drive. For sure. The reason he starts with the blessed are, the, mm-hmm. you know, the flourishing are, the happy are, is that there's, he's not afraid of, um, I, I guess, or he's not as reticent maybe as as we are mm-hmm. now to say, you want to be happy, and then this is the, and I'm going to appeal to that, and I'm going to uh, agree with that as kind of a motivating drive, and maybe that's not the way to say it, no, but no, Jesus I think so. kind of leans into that and then says, I'll, yeah. I'll show you this way. Maybe talk about that.
1: Yeah, I think what I began to see, especially when I was working on the Sermon on the Mount and giving myself an education in philosophy and ethics, came to see that the virtue ethic tradition, the ancient tradition of of understanding what the good is, the ethics, which I think the Bible shares, uh, is that it's about the person developing a certain kind of character and wisdom so that they might experience true human flourishing. Mm -hmm. And that's very different than what develops in modern ethics – especially with Kant and what's, and what's called altruism, the idea that something is only good if you get no benefit from it. Hmm. And that idea becomes really central that, that something, if you get some benefit from it, therefore it's somehow tainted. That notion becomes so embedded in modern Western culture, including into Christians, that then we reread the Bible with that understanding and we have to ignore so many things in the Bible that are appealing to us to get our better to get our best good, mm. you know, and as I look back on that, I realized I think one of the one of the data points or one of the things that first would have turned me that way was john piper 's old desiring God I mean if you go back and look at desiring God, this is the argument he 's making. he called it christian hedonism, which right. i, I don 't find a helpful term because philosophically is hedonism, hedonism is the opposite of happiness, Mm. right? So it's provocative. So that's helpful in that sense (laughs) that it kind of stirs, you know, it stirs you to think about it. So that's fine. I don't find it philosophically a very helpful term, but the idea, and he's getting this from C.S. Lewis and he's he's getting it from Jonathan Edwards, is that of course God wants you to enter into flourishing. That's not a question. It's, are you going to be foolish and try to find happiness in things other than God? That's the whole genius of desiring God. Now, you know, I think Piper, God's used him in amazing ways, you know, obviously for, you know, for couple generation now, you know, or more, Um, you know, there, there's some ways in which uh, I think he's intense on some things that is uh, sometimes might fight against enjoying the things of the life of life. (laughs) You know, he's got an asceticism in him that I don't have, but the genius of what he was saying way back in the early eighties was, was one of the things that I think began to click in, in my mind, but it took later study of philosophy and virtue to really kind of see it fully. So.
2: And that's what, there's a theme in the Sermon on the Mount of reward that Jesus will yeah. kind of come back to over and again, which seems to kind of be the thread that carries th- that um, that you should want this, you should desire this, and to live this kind of life as paradoxical as it, might, as it might be, as difficult as it might be, it will end in your good, which is obviously satisfaction in God, but also there's this promise of just this abundant return from choosing this kind of life. Mm-hmm.
1: And you've got to We got to fight in ourselves that knee-jerk reaction that if somehow I get something out of it, therefore it's less than holy or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a nice idea, but that's not in the Bible. That's. I think you know? that's what's so interesting
0: about what you're saying is we talk a lot about the alternative stories that make their way mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. Christianity, and I think that what we're pointing out and what we're talking about right now is that idea of altruism entering mm-hmm. in. For sure. I also think there is the the idea of sometimes we can be. Um, too quick. At, at w- sometimes we're very quick to adopt the thinking of the world, unknowingly maybe, or just because we live in it. Sometimes we're uh too quick to push things away. So the idea of happiness, right? I think I wonder if part of what happened with happiness is as the world offered a shallow vision for happiness, mm-hmm. there was an skewing of of that idea by the church, but they forgot to offer the positive, the the, mm-hmm. the to posit the true way of happiness, in some instances, not in all. But there was a shallowness, I think, that entered in. And this is part of what I think is so fascinating about Jesus the Great Philosopher, um, is at some point along the way, and you don't explicitly state this in the book, but at some point along the way, some of us experience, I'm sure not everybody, but some of us experienced that feeling that um, Christianity is about saving souls. Hmm. that's what it's about. It's about... And and please hear me, the gospel absolutely has that element. But to the same idea of human flourishing, happiness, how do we know things? How do we grasp and understand the reality of the world so that we may walk in reality, truth, uh, in in such a way that it brings flourishing and that we might set up uh, systems that do this and all that? These deep ideas of what God is doing and redeeming. And Jesus didn't just come and say, you know, come with me. Um, he also is redeeming all things, right? And you don't you don't want to over-realize that. But uh, it seemed that the church lost that a little bit. And um, for a time, let, let other disciplines answer those questions. And I think some of that is what we're getting into now. You want happiness? That's some other thing that the world answers. That's not what Jesus is about. Uh, You want to feel good? That's not. That's some therapeutic version of the gospel. That's not what Jesus is about. You want, and it was almost a a stiff arming of really wonderful things that Jesus talks about, that Christ talks about, that God talks about, that the gospels talk about. And I think, I think what happened is is a asceticism for sure, but a shallowness entered the church. As you are reading the Sermon on the Mount what drew you to to interact with philosophy like how did that come because you just you you mentioned it briefly there but i'm curious about like how did you all of a sudden go wow i need to kind of think about kant
1: or i need to think about whoever right the virtue ethicists and yeah, yeah. Like that. yeah so i started teaching through the sermon on the mount as a class uh, separately. Like, I just saw it in the course catalog. I thought, hey, I could teach Sermon on the Mount. I know Matthew. And I very quickly realized, I have no idea (laughs) what I'm doing here. (laughs) And so I needed to, it began a journey of self-education. And one of the things is that when you start to study the Sermon on the Mount, you quickly realize it's, it's a whole field of study in of itself. Right. So if I can use the Library of Congress, I'll maybe be a, make some super nerds out there happy, but <laughs> Library of Congress, BS 2575, are all the books in the Library of Congress catalog system for the Gospel of Matthew. And it's a large wow. section, right? Well, I quickly learned that there's a whole other section. What is it? Oh, I should know it off the top of my head. BT410 or something like that. I could be wrong in that. That is just books on the Sermon on the Mount. I think that's from right. Star Wars. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that as well. So, but there's there's a whole se- separate section in the library just on the Sermon on the Mount. Wow. You know, it's hard to imagine any other portion of the Bible that has its own Library of Congress Congress catalog number that's only a part of a book of the Bible, right? So, and it turns out it's been the most studied and preached on and taught about portion of the Bible throughout the last 2,000 years, starting Mm. with the Church Fathers. So quickly I realized, oh wow, I'm really in over my head. But then when you start looking at all those books on the Sermon on the Mount throughout history, a ton of them are written by ethicists or written by Mm. moral theologians would be the older term that the Catholic tradition still uses, which I really like, moral theologians. And so, I quickly realized, oh, this is like the primary text that Christians have used to understand what it means to do what is right, what it Mm. means to be moral. And so, that led me then into starting to read about ethics, and then quickly I realized, oh, in terms of ethics, I'm definitely on the virtue side. I think this makes sense. And then what the virtue tradition comes from the Aristotelian tradition, you know, so those were the steps, I think, that were all happening uh, at that time. And so then it all kind of started to click. Um, And it turns out that the way, what I'm offering in the Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing is not really new, it's Mm. the older way of reading the sermon Mm. that we have lost, especially as Protestants. Um, Because I do think, to get back to what you were mentioning before, I do think we have narrowed the gospel down to being about individual personal salvation that comes through the backward look of trusting in Jesus' sacrificial death. Right. I don't want any less of that in our gospel. That's absolutely foundational the gospel. But the gospel itself is bigger than that. It's the message that God is coming to is returning to the world through the incarnation of Christ to reestablish his reign and to bring life and flourishing again, you know, post-Eden to it. And, and you know, so that was even something I was talking about in the earlier book, Reading Gospels' wise. Right. like, what mm-hmm. does the word gospel mean? Well, in mm-hmm. the Bible, the word gospel means the good news that God is restoring, returning to restore his reign. So... All of that was leading up to sort of recognizing, yeah, the the message of the Bible is bigger than my personal individual forgiveness of sins. yeah It's me entering into a kingdom community through repentance and faith in Christ alone, but I'm entering into a kingdom community, which is the place of where real flourishing is happening. Mm-hmm. right. So it all, all those things are connected together. But it took me a long journey to kind of put all yeah. those pieces together. So. And
2: they and they have to. It's two sides of the same coin, right? A um, a view of the Christian story that is all about Jesus did something for you so that you can go to heaven when you die is going to have less uh, of a foundation to stand on for answering questions like virtue and like mm-hmm. ethics and the way I think I, I may be not because I heard it this way and because but I, I think the way that I would have articulated. Christianity as, say, like a sophomore in high school is, Jesus died for my sins, so I can go to heaven when I die, and I really need to be obedient, or else it shows that I didn't really appreciate mm-hmm. what He did on the cross. And there there are small moments of mm-hmm. truth in that, but sure. what is true and what's articulated in the Sermon on the Mount, and then in your writings on the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus as philosopher, is a story that's just so much more compelling than that. But it feels like for one to be restored, the other has to be restored, that... that that the essence of what the gospel is, the good news that the kingdom both both is to come, yes, but it already has begun, and to be invited into, um, into a way of living now. And I thought one of the things that was so helpful in the commentary was your definition of righteousness, mm-hmm. because uh, it... It just helped. It felt like an inroad into mm-hmm. that. And I believe, I might botch it, but yeah. righteousness. I'm curious if you got to memorize it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a whole way of being that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom.
1: all right? I say whole person behavior that accords with God's will, nature, and coming kingdom. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay.
2: Can you talk just about that definition a little sure. bit? I think
1: it's really helpful in tying some of those thoughts together. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, righteousness is a big word in the Bible that, uh, like a lot of big $64,000 words, it's got like different aspects of it. The way Paul uses righteousness, he uses it in a couple of different ways uh, to certainly connected to the idea of imputation that we'd use, but also a lot of scholars would observe that when he says righteousness, a lot of times he's using it like God setting the world to right uh, through Christ, which is really helpful. But the more normal sense of righteousness in the Hebrew scriptures and into, I think, Matthew and James and Hebrews, uh, which are all kind of connected, is the idea of doing what is right. (laughs) I I mean, that's the... That's the kind of more basic sense of of righteousness. Yes, if you're asking the question, does doing what is right earn your favor with God? No. Obviously no, you know, and that's the kind of issues Paul's addressing. But when you're asking the more normal question (laughs) of what would what should a human do made in God's image, well, you do what is right, right? And And in fact, when you do what is right, that's the only way you'll experience true life and flourishing right and so i think matthew is using that more normal biblical sense of righteousness to mean doing what is right as he says in matthew five twenty. unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and pharisees you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven we as protestants are quick to inject oh he must refer to you know imputation there but it's very clear if you read the sermon in Matthew he's not talking about imputation at all yes there's an atoning sacrifice of Jesus at the end but that's not what righteousness means in Matthew and the whole personness is where it comes out like if you if you look in the sermon on the mount and other places in Matthew you'll see that the point is that our human tendency is to think of righteousness as just doing external things while not paying attention to what's really going on inside our hearts, mm-hmm. and so that's where the whole personness of it comes in. Yeah. That he's saying, yes, it's good to do what is what you know, good to do the right things on the outside, like not committing adultery and praying and you know, turning the other cheek. Those are good things to do. But if you're doing those things and your heart is not attuned to God, your Maker, then you don't. Re- you're not really righteous. That's mm-hmm. where the whole person behavior comes in. Um, so just more they I can say about I that. I hope that's helpful. It's yeah. super
0: helpful and I think to thread it back through what we're talking about you know I think what's there's this question of what do you lose when you don't see that and uh, you know to personalize it I think I'm open with my story of of anxiety and and depression on this podcast we've done you know total we've done big um season arcs on mental health and other things. But I think going back to this very first questions we were talking about with suffering and happiness, you know, I think one of the things you lose is the idea of how to live in this world. So if, 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 if it's all about we don't have to obey the law anymore, Jesus died for our sin's imputation and now we can go to heaven. what happens is is you lose the bigger a, a part of it, a bigger idea of there's actually a way of living in the world, that brings joy pleasures at his right hand forevermore that brings um and then that can actually bring flourishing again not over-realized but can bring some sense of kingdom on earth which imbues your life with purpose a life here on earth totally. with purpose and and so when you're like put it this way when you're suffering and and all Christianity is about is um well i guess you know, I'll, when I die, I'll go to heaven. The scriptures become kind of superfluous to what living on earth is really like. I'm not going anymore to Jesus to figure out, to find healing or restoration. I'm not going to Jesus anymore to ask the big questions about the world and what seems so broken in it and what's wrong. It's like, well, I guess that's just sin and there's nothing really we can do. One day he'll come back and, you know, and I, you just lose a depth of life. And yet the, the gospels offer so much more. They offer freedom from sin, obviously. They offer a depth of belief that with, can withstand your suffering, that says, hey, with Jesus in the in the valley of the shadow of death, he can lead you through something. And there's a depth of life and a purpose to life, even in the midst of suffering, that can equal joy. And that's what you regain by by Understanding what righteousness is and what's happening inside you and how when you live in a righteous way, you become the love of Christ to a dying world. And I it's just rich. I, you know, I'm kind of I'm I'm just kind of prattling on. But I think what's so important about this message, this fully orbed message of the gospel, um, is that uh it offers so much more hope. Yes. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, Does sure. that make sense? And yeah. you yeah. think about
2: what yeah. what Right after that passage, if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the righteousness of the the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus hits anger, he hits lust, Mm. he's going to talk about relationships, loving your enemies, marriage, and it's, if what that verse means, if it's just imputation, if it's just, Jesus said that, he picked the most righteous people there are to show us that there's no way that we can meet that standard and so we need to you know come to him for grace and mercy, and that is true one hundred percent true, but if what he's what he's if what he's saying about righteousness is there's a way that your heart can change so that you your behavior accords with God's nature will and coming kingdom because your heart is falling in love with God's nature will and coming kingdom without that. If it's just you know the righteousness is to show us that we need grace and uh, because we're so sinful, I'm going to look at anger and I'm going to go somewhere else for answers to That's my right. anger, and I'm going to look at you know sexual morality. I'm going to go somewhere else for those answers with my relationship. Go somewhere else for the answers. But if what he means is what what Jesus is actually doing is he's offering a way to become whole again, you know, to mm-hmm. flourish in the world again, and that is cannot happen apart from him. It certainly is because of his grace, a response to his love, that all of our anger and all of our sexual morality and all of our relational baggage can be healed and forgiven mm-hmm. in him. And if that's true, then I'm going to come to him with that anger, and I'm going to come to him with, you know, the the struggles with sexual morality. I'm going to come to him with my relationships, and it seems like that then puts us at his feet, like one would sit at the feet of a philosopher, you mm, know, right, and right. ask him to teach
1: us. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's really good. And, you know, and I and I think of this um this is one of the things I learned from Aristotle and others that I think the Bible was doing before Aristotle was, but the idea the fundamental idea of the philosophers of virtue and flourishing were that the only way you could experience fullness of life is if you live according to reality. That's it, yeah. Right? And so mm. this is why there were all the different view- theories that Aristotle and everybody had about atomic theory and what's the nature of a horse is it a you know culmination of a bunch of characteristics or is it some form that is an ideal that you know, all these kind of metaphysical debates that you think philosophy was about the reason they did all that stuff in the ancient world is so that they could figure out what the nature of reality was mm. so that you could live according to it because if you don't live according to what is real then you'll never be aligned with it if you you know, if you insist on wearing swimming trunks at Antarctica, you're going to die, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the reality in the sense that you um, you have to live according to reality. Well, I think the Bible, which is the, you know, truest teaching of the world, um, is saying the same thing, that we're made in the image of God, Right. And that means the only way we're in the world that he has made, and so the only way we're going to be able to live in this world and in relationship with each other and in relationship to God, if we're living according to reality. Mm. And that's what the whole Bible is about, is saying, here's the reality, so live this way, rather than what your flesh and the world and the devil tells you. Live these ways, because that's the only way you're going to... Fine life. I mean, it's it's lining up. It's like someone who insists, or maybe I, I was telling you guys before we started that I have a new car for the first time in my life, and it's got lane assist, right? right? And it's even got some auto driving features, but just lane assist. It's been very interesting. It's a little annoying when I'm trying to jam out to my Taylor Swift and it beeps at me if, I'm, <laughs> if it beep, 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 you know, if I'm out of it. But lane assist. You can think of the whole Bible as lane assist, mm-hmm. right? Not, of course, I know what we need to rightly say is that you're not earning your favor with God. Of course, not all that, but. The Bible is keeping us in the lane so that we don't drive off the yeah. cliff. Right. I mean, right. that's a good thing. Right. And that's a gift. That's the invitation. It's all begun by grace. We're dead in our trespasses. We're made alive where it's begun by grace It's sustained by grace. It'll be completed by grace, but it's still lane assist. You mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. the Bible is guiding us uh, so that we might find true life. That's good.
2: Speaking
0: of that, moving a little bit into Jesus, the great philosopher, you say in the beginning of it, and it's so true, uh, to describe Jesus as a philosopher in this day and age is almost, could be taken as offensive, right? right? Because most of us don't understand what philosophy is. And I think philosophy in a lot of ways has lost its way as somebody who thought I was gonna, all I ever wanted to be was a philosophy Mm -hmm. professor Mm -hmm. when I was in college. um, You know, uh, knowing what that discipline is about these days, it's like, wait, Jesus is a philosopher. What are we trying to say? He's Mm -hmm. just a great teacher or something. Tell us a little bit more about, why it's important and i you know we've been talking about it already but maybe just with a little bit um, pre- more precision why is it important to understand jesus
1: as a philosopher so shorter answers that's yeah, maybe by a little bit yeah. right? <laughs> fair enough yeah i mean it is really what we've been talking about in the sense that uh, god is offering us the true wisdom that we need, and the ultimate version of that is the incarnation of Himself and the Son, the exact representation of mm. God. Um, and all I'm trying to do, and I love what you said at the beginning, uh, that you felt like it reconnected, or what did you say, it, it uh, reconnected. Restored something that maybe it's been lost. That's exactly been my experience. Is Mm -hmm. that, and it's the subtitle of the book is I think rediscovering or something rediscovering the wisdom needed for the good life. So for me, uh, this has been a rediscovery, Mm -hmm. and really what I'm offering is not a new idea. It is something that was universal in the early church, and really at least through the Reformation, the idea that. Christianity is wisdom. That Jesus is a philosopher. As you know, if you read the book, I, yeah. at the beginning I talk about sacred art and and how it was very typical to depict Jesus as a philosopher. You think Justin Martyr, you know, I always like to say it's always good to remember that you know Martyr was not his last name, and it and it wasn't <laughs> something that he adopted before he died. Right? right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what was what did he call himself? <laughs> Justin the philosopher, right? Because yeah. his whole conversion story that he tells us in the dialogue with Trifo is that he was tried out every philosophy of the world and they all either wouldn't let him in because he didn't have enough prereqs or they dissatisfied. They were, they didn't solve it. And then he met an old guy who started telling him about Christ and he realized this is the philosophy I've always longed for, mm-hmm. meaning the way of seeing and being in the world, right? That's what a philosophy is. Yeah. And, and so this is for all I'm trying to do in this book is help people rediscover a very early and long-term christian idea that jesus is the great philosopher to restore that and not to in any way take away anything we understand or talk about jesus savior lord king all those things but to add to it right another concept and as i talk about the very beginning of the book you know like if you were to walk into a church and you know see all these banners um you know King, friend of sinners, all these kind of things. We'd be pretty surprised if we saw one that said philosopher. But mm-hmm. that's one I wish we would have. Maybe you guys can start doing <laughs> philosopher. There, there's two. I always joke that we would be shocked to see if we went into a church, friend of sinners, all those exorcist and philosopher. <laughs> but yeah. those are those are, I think, probably two of the. Most common things that Jesus is described as in the Gospels is mm. an exorcist and as a philosopher. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. So I'm just trying to help us sort of rediscover that and yeah. then and then apply it to some areas of our life. Yeah, yeah.
0: I think um just per- personalizing it. Some, not that, that maybe it's interesting, maybe it's not. But that that was my pathway um, really to Jesus was through philosophy, and it was it's interesting that with philosophy, the questions I was asking and many friends, you know, and you talk about this in the book a little bit, like for some people interested in philosophy, it's sort of like they like puzzles or something. Mm -hmm. For some, it's sort of the pot smoking, you know, free thinker who's Mm -hmm. like, oh, what if we don't, you know, (laughs) what if the chair, you know, is the chair still in the room, you know, kind of thing. Um, But I think for a lot of people, it's exact doing exactly what you say, trying to figure out the way, what is reality? What's the story of reality? Truth is that which most matches reality. That's one definition, right? So, what's the story of reality? And then, how do I live in reality? You you gave the example of wearing shorts on a uh, in Ar- Antarctica, but it's it's also like um, uh, a rowboat that wants to pretend it's a car. It will never actually achieve its true purpose, and it'll have a really hard time operating as a car because it's a rowboat, you know. And the idea of you know. Humans, does the robot have lane guide? It does have <laughs> lane assist. No. But it is I mean but think about it that way. Are we like a robo? Is 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 what in what ancient what the what philosophers and I would contend are still doing is trying to answer that question. Um what how do we live in the world? Uh and how do we live in the world in such a way that we are happy or we have joy or whatever. Now, part of the loss was I think the, the sort of um, shedding of metaphysics uh, that, you know, there is actually no meaning behind anything. Now, none, no philosophers actually pretend that because they're still doing philosophy. That's what's so funny. You know, a philosopher today who denies that there is an underlying meaning to the world is still trying to figure out sure. how to live in the world in a way that is meaningful. So i I've always just... But as I've gone along, what I realized was... The questions that I was most interested in answering were actually answered by Jesus, who is the greatest philosopher, because he describes the world as it most truly is, describes humans as they most truly are, and then gives us a way of operating in that world that leads to the most flourishing meaning and purpose. And I, I just as you, I mean, that's what, that's your argument in the book. And as you made that argument, it's like all the dots were connected. Mm -hmm. So this is sweet. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I guess I'm just, I guess
2: I'm just thanking you. But I have a question for both of you because both of you said something, um, Jesus, seeing Jesus under the banner, right? If it's, um, if it's the banners in the church and they say friend of sinners and savior and king, and one says philosopher, seeing that banner appropriated to Jesus, you both said it restored your confidence, or maybe strengthened confidence in, in Christianity, really, in what we believe. And I, I wonder if if there's something uh, really important to just observe in that, that part of the Christianity, or the, the moment, I guess, that we inherited living at the time that we live, right, um, in the 21st century, and, you know, post-Enlightenment, and a very secularized world, if it wasn't that, um, historically, that would not have been shocking, like what you've said, Dr. Pennington, Justin the philosopher, right? Um, and then even, I think, the work that pastors, theologians used to do was was is, but especially was more prominently philosophical. And I wonder if it's not that we're living at a time where it feels like Christianity has been relegated. Where it used to occupy land, just very naturally, that people don't think it occupies mm. anymore. Maybe that's the wrong way to say it, but it's like I, um, you know, I I know where to get my financial wisdom from, and I know where to get like my health and physical wisdom from, and I know kind of how the like uh it we've been deceived in. In, into believing that Christianity actually doesn't answer that question, that this is the way to see and be in the world that leads to your life being most full and most satisfying. And it just, it it feels really important. I'm thinking even in in, in kind of the false, um, the way that, that maybe the culture would pit faith and reason against one another, um, the way that it would be like if you, uh, I, I don't know, does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I, you know,
0: for, for me, the way that is exactly what we're talking about. I mean, I think there's a way to, I think the way we've been talking about it is what is the world? Who are we? What were we made for? How do we operate? So that we are living what we're made for? I think those are the key questions. And, and like, maybe, okay, this is a show about culture. I mean, you can see this played out right now, sort of in some of the uh, conversations about race, Mm -hmm. right? And you will hear some people say, well, wait a minute, like systems, race, all that. That's not, that's not the gospel. You know, that's the gospel is salvation. And so we need to stay out of that debate. You know, that's you bringing the world into the church or something. And I, and I understand that argument and I understand, um, what's happening there, but to that I say, whoa, 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 you know, um, slow down a second. Like, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Jesus does have something to say about wicked systems. He does have something to say. Now, we need to use the language that he gives yes. us to argue about those things. It's really important, but I'm, um, I'm, I'm not afraid to have those conversations. On the other hand, I think the worst of certain systematic theology is like, uh uh jesus is a republican right and let me give you the biblical argument or jesus is a capitalist and let me give you the biblical argument i'm like i get really wary about that so are there does jesus have something very real to say about finances yes he does um but i think you can do it in a way that starts to get a little goofy and maybe that's what the pullback was at the
2: same time you know i don't know and if i were to turn if i were to like turn the the whatever that was that I just... The ramble of mine, not yours, Adam. I always love your rambles. All I do is ramble, um, so... But if I were to turn it into a question, I think it would be that. It would be, if Jesus is philosopher, what ground do we stand more confidently on now that maybe what what kind of... Um, when you talk about it restoring almost a, a sense of uh, surety and confidence in Christianity, if we were to name kind of the areas... Yeah. That that... Um, that that has been true for you for what would what would those be? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd say I love everything you guys said. Yeah, the Christianity is a is a worldview, or I prefer the term philosophy. Yeah, not just a religion, um, or uh, something about my personal relationship with God or something. It's it is a, a world engaging and world transforming philosophy. That's how it was understood by itself in the Bible itself. And that's how early Christians understood it. I love uh, the term politeia, which is one of the ways that Chrysostom and other people describe Christianity. Mm-hmm. It's a a whole, it's a hard word to translate exactly, but it's like politeia means you can hear the word politics are in it, but that's too negative. It's, it's like a whole vision for, how to structure and be in society as a community of people yeah. don't know, we, we don't have a word exactly for right. that you know but that's that vision of christianity i think is what has been so transformative for me you could also talk about it in t- terms of kingdom which mm-hmm. you know citizens church is very kingdom theologically oriented um and this this is i think another way of talking about it that Christianity is about God's kingdom on Earth, Mm -hmm. both engaging with and transforming the world by inviting people into the true life that is found only through Jesus Christ, you know, but so that, you know, the door into the kingdom is cross-shaped, but it's a door Mm -hmm. and it's into a new community of people. Mm right and and so this is it's a low door it's a very low cross you know that you have to be humble to get into but what you're getting into is this new community that sees itself as the true community of the people of the world that is out outward focused inviting people to come in you know so for me that's it's just kind of deepened and strengthened and expanded that whole beautiful vision mm-hmm. that the Christian faith is a is a whole philosophy
0: yeah yeah I I'm, I'm not gonna Say it better than that, but for me, I think it is just that um, the depth, the beauty—you um, know what—before felt a little thin. Mm-hmm. Maybe all of a sudden got really robust, less reductionistic. Before, when I'm going, man, I don't, I, I'm depressed. I guess I need to get on medicine, which I am on medicine. I tell everybody that, so I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely. That's a common grace, but. It's to say, oh man, Jesus actually cares about that. Yeah. And if I live a certain way, I can actually live in a way where I, maybe my favorite phrase is from that Jean Bethke Elstein, I don't know how to say her name well, but she was a uh, professor at University of Chicago. I've talked about it a lot. She had polio as a kid. It returned when she was older. And she talked about healing coming in the absence of a cure. Mm, and mm-hmm. I've, uh, that's, I say that all the time. It's that, um, knowing jesus does not mean that i don't have anxiety anymore but it means that my anxiety now can turn me into a sage Mm. it means my anxiety now can show me something about living in the world that makes life worth living and really beautiful um it means that the suffering we face every day or whatever when i feel when my son comes home and says somebody made fun of me or my friend said this about me i'm not like well when you die you'll go to heaven you know <laughs> it's like all yeah. of a sudden i can say you know jesus cares about that and yeah. he cares about that in a way not just to say well He's sat alongside you though he is but hey did you know when he said that to you there's something really beautiful that he wants to communicate to you in that right do, do you hear the depth and beauty in that and mm-hmm. that's what i meant about recovering It's like. Somehow Christianity became so much more beautiful when I knew that I could look at the things happening in the world and in my own life and realize that Jesus had a way of 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 categorizing and shaping and speaking into it, and it just everything went from black and white to color. Mm-hmm. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Was yeah. Your pause
1: moment, yeah, right, yeah. And if I could come at it another way as well in terms of thinking of the couple of the losses. So philosophy changed. Philosophy became about. Esoteric yes. discussions, some of which are I find very interesting. I, I love epistemology and I right. love reading that stuff, but it, but it, it limited its its effect uh, in the modern period, and it didn't become a whole life thing. So philosophy becomes a department in a university, not a way of inhabiting the world. So that's a loss. And at the same time, especially in the West, and especially really only in the last seventy five years, we've had the I call it the Scrubs effect or the MD effect that if you were to ask somebody in modern Western civilization, who's the most important person in society, I I bet most people would say a medical doctor, they'd say Mm. a doctor, Mm -hmm. right? That's a major, major change in human history. Um, That is that, and it's probably especially true in in the United States, that we have now come to value the people who have a very limited worldview. I'm not very thankful for doctors, you know, I mean, I am, but it's a very limited worldview and it's a skill set that is super limited and doesn't tell you how to really live, doesn't tell you how to be satisfied, doesn't know how how to have a good marriage or parenting or all the things that relate to your God who created you. None of that. But we've come to value that particular occupation as opposed to a pastor or even a professor, which would have been more valued in most societies um, and still is probably in Europe, I would think. We've come to value that particular occupation because with the addition of amazing technology, which is remarkable, and medicines, we're actually able to eliminate or minimize a lot of physical pain mm-hmm. and, and psychological pain. You know, right, I mean, I'm right. a believer in psychological medicine as well, and that's all good. But that shift means that it shows a shift in our culture that what we value most now is avoiding pain. That's yeah. it, avoiding pain and prolonging death. And
2: that's a purpose shift, uh, yes. I think. And and you know, if you pay attention to any of the statistics right now, it's also not working. I mean, it's right. that the medical and technological advancements are working by way of keeping people alive but they're not working by way of of giving people a sense of satisfaction mm-hmm. and um it's just the 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 irony of that that it's and it seems like and we've talked about this in our wisdom series it seems like part of what's happened is we've we've realized that even in all of our advancement in all of our technology. And all of our information overload, none of that amounts that might amount to keeping us alive longer. it doesn't amount to making us immortal, mm-hmm. and that makes us freak out we're making us happy we're making happy uh, yeah. something interesting about um that came to mind when you're talking about the the most important kind of person in society, and maybe it, that used to be a thinker right or that used to be a professor, a professor or a a pastor professor, yeah um, I was reading through uh alistair McGrath has the c s Lewis biography. And he talks about how misunderstood C.S. Lewis was and how he kind of always operated on an island in whatever room that he was in, but especially in his time at uh, Oxford, that the more that... And, and part of that is because he... um he didn't just stay in academia he didn't just write academic works but he intentionally wrote for the common person obviously the, the narnia that he wrote and 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 then even just the books that he wrote for the for for the guys like me to be able to read and understand and what happened is is that kind of invited scorn from his colleagues they couldn't understand why he was writing you know common Books or common works and those kinds of things. And so it made me, while you were talking, it made me, and maybe there's not an answer to it, it just made me wonder if that's not like a, a two way street in some ways. If, if maybe something about society, culture believes that those higher thoughts or that higher academic work is only for a very small margin of the population. And, uh, and everyone else is living a normal life. You so know it wasn't I mean? just
1: the medical doctor's fault. It was the professor's fault on the other side as well, that oh. they became more esoteric. and Sure. Very, which is exactly what I'm saying about philosophy. That's exactly right. 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 I mean, all, all the academic world became a lot more aloof and separated from daily life. Yeah. Which was a mistake, right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: But then, what we see here's what's really interesting. You point this out in Jesus and the Great Philosopher. So, what what you're describing is what's called the public intellectual, right? And so, we you really saw this really early on. And we're going in a different trail a little bit for a second, but you really saw this early on. The guys like uh, John Dewey, who's a philosopher, uh, an educator, and all these kind of things. Whatever you feel about him, he's on radio shows. He has the ear of presidents. He's talking policy. He's he's in the language and and he's in the culture this is a public intellectual. And as you go further on, as things become a little bit more esoteric, as you have the sort of avoidance of pain and these kind of things happening, people really thought in some ways, this has been talked about, that the public intellectual died that mm. there is the last bastion may have been like documentary films or something like that. It, for a while, it was books, the novel writer or something, and then that's kind of gone away. But what you've seen, especially with the advent of podcasts, TED, TED talks, talks, all yeah. that, who's now we are starved for this. And you mentioned in the book a guy like Jordan Peterson. There mm-hmm. are there are a dime a dozen now these kind of thinkers who are trying to who are trying to draw a line, uh, uh, th- answer this question, the question we've been talking about, and the public is starved for that. And I think that's why it's so important for a pastor to understand what we actually believe and then occupy that role, hmm. right? To speak winsomely into culture, these ideas, to not retreat from that um it's so important because otherwise our people are just going to go to jordan peterson or some other dude or woman and you know
1: if i jump in that's yeah that's really good i hadn't really put this together this way before until you're just saying that that yeah like what we've now what we have in our society is medical doctors crossfit coaches right and ted talkers right Mm. like it's like you have to go to those three places to find some purpose in life, right? Right, right. And that's because we have, partly because we've stopped thinking of Christianity as a whole life philosophy. Mm-hmm. Now, I need to put a big footnote on that. Right. I don't mean by that we only read the Bible mm-hmm. <laughs> and that CrossFit's bad or medical right, doctors right, are bad right, right. or Warren Buffett's <laughs> bad or anything. I mean, you know, there's a there's a really important robust way to understand the the beauty and the sufficiency and the power of scripture that doesn't mean it's opposed to wisdom and insight that comes through common grace in the world as well. Cause that's also there. And I think exercise routines and whatever else it is, there's a ton of good in that. So by talking about Christianity as a whole life philosophy, that's not saying we should reject all that. It's just recognizing that Christianity is not, we can't be just put in this drawer of the religious part of our lives. Mm. It's, seeking seeking to shape our sensibilities and hearts and habits and a way of inhabiting the world yeah. that may also turn out to line up with some beautiful things in crossfit or, or whatever sure. may or may not i don't know um, or yoke fit as i like to get you know, from <laughs> yeah, yeah, from yeah. matthew 11 but <laughs> but uh, that's i think that's an important kind of nuance to keep there
2: yeah so. and i th- i think that if if we expect of jesus that his voice is the philosopher's voice and he even says in the Sermon on the Mount, "You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, it's incredibly authoritative. It's divine, you know, in its in its posture at least." Um, that maybe one good takeaway even for the listener: What does it mean that Jesus is philosopher? Just very practically, is that Jesus gets first word on mm. everything? And, That's good. Uh, yeah. I I I've noticed this with my kids. My my oldest is eleven, and. Just there's, you know, they hear all kinds of things, and especially with, you know, as their world gets larger and there's more sports and more friends and more technology. I've just noticed that um, there are so many things to talk about with him, and it's impossible to talk about all of them before he hears about them from someone else or somewhere else. And what I've noticed is, is, is the importance of, of having, of being one of the most, um, formational, foundational voices in his life. Obviously, we know that about parents, but the things that he talks about with someone else first that we haven't talked about are some of the harder conversations to have because his mind and his thinking Mm. is so shaped by how he first heard about that thing, whether it was World War II and why World War II happened, right? We had that Mm. conversation Mm. the other day. Or if it's, you know, technology and what our relationship to technology should be, or whether it's marriage or something along those lines. And it seems like In an even more important way. I know as as his dad, one of my jobs is to try to be first word on the things that matter most. But for us as followers of Jesus, to approach Jesus that way, that I'm going to discipline my heart, I'm going to humble myself to say, um, my Savior, who is also my philosopher, has the first word in my Mm. life on all of these things. I really like because that. he says, you've heard that it was said, but I say. And so what I don't ever want to do is I don't ever want to assume Jesus is silent where he's actually spoken in a way that could change my life, you know. Mm. Um, and so I'll 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 render to him the the first word on on ever. And I would rather assume that Jesus has an opinion and be wrong than assume he doesn't and be wrong. You know, it just feels like if I'm gonna if I'm gonna err on one side, it's that Jesus actually cares what kind of gym I go to, or, or as trite as that might be,
1: I, I, yeah. Or to get more, you know, think about TED Talks again, like Brene Brown or something. I mean, it's good stuff, right? You know, there's yeah. so many good. I mean, I, I feel ambivalent about TED Talks overall because they, the, the nuggetizing um effect of them means that they're like a chicken McNugget you know <laughs> yeah. rather than a, than a full course italian meal you know or yeah, something yeah, yeah. so that includes chicken uh, so there there is a problematizing of thinking that we could get this sort of like life transferring wisdom in 18 minutes or whatever right. it is but you know the strength of them is that you do get access to some really good thoughts um and so it's not a rejection of that it's just a recognition that in our culture that we have sought these alternative gurus now because we've stopped thinking about our faith as having something to say about those things so Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm.
0: well speaking of first word dr pennington we want you to have the last word on this podcast um, (laughs) how can we access the full course meals of what you have to offer where where do we need to go um you know uh you have written uh great books Jesus the Great Philosopher, available wherever there are books, but are there other resources or ways that we can uh, access your voice and what you have to say on these topics?
1: Sure, sure. Uh, thanks, yeah, it's been a delight to talk with you guys. I do have a website, uh, jonathanpannington.com, that includes um, links to books as well as I I'm, I preach and teach a lot, and so there's links to the podcast, the Human Flourishing Podcast, Great. that is, is a record of... of uh, most of the things I say in public and then other books. So, yep. You have your own podcasts. Uh, Yeah. It's basically just a record of all my speaking engagements when I'm out place. So I'm not on there interviewing people, but when I'm, you know, preaching or teaching. Someplace. Yeah. And what's yeah. it called again? Uh, the Human Flourishing Podcast. I didn't yeah. know about this. Well, he had another yeah. podcast too. Yeah. Cars Coffee Theology, which... Very good. Is, I haven't done the episodes in a couple years, but that was tons of fun. Yeah. yeah. So you can find that on YouTube, Cars, or on on podcasts as well, Cars Coffee Theology, where I ride around in my old RX-8 and talk with good friends about their good books. That's, so that's amazing. Super cool. Yeah.
0: Well, Dr. Pennington, thank you so much. And, you know, they say... Uh, never meet your heroes, but uh, you've proven that wrong. So appreciate it because a you lot. didn't meet me, or, or didn't meet I you, married. and uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, so great to have you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to culture matters this episode was recorded and edited by chris starrett and produced by chris starrett and chelsea conway one of the best ways you can help others find our show is to leave us a review unless it's a bad one so please take a minute to rate us we would love to hear from you another good way to interact with us is by following us on instagram and by supporting our patron page at patron.podbean.com slash culture matters see you next time